so much for coming. This is Melissa Grady, and I am very, very excited for today's topic. And I'm going to let our speakers introduce themselves. Today's topic is about evidence-based practice in social work. And just so folks know, this article will be free access for two months, which means everybody can access it um, from our website, which is the clinicalsocialworkjournal.com. And the title of the article is Social Workers' Knowledge and Attitudes About Evidence-Based Practice, Differences Between Graduate Students, Educators, and Practitioners. And it's going to be out in the issue that is coming out September of 2022. So I hope everybody will check it out. Again, it is open and free for anybody to go and read it on our website. So I'm gonna let our speakers introduce themselves. They are the co-authors of this article and I'll let you take it from here. Thanks, Melissa. Uh, this is Kristen Prock and I am an assistant professor in the Department of Social Work at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. This is Sarah Hussner. I am a professor in social work at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Hello everyone, I'm Katherine Dreschler and I'm also an assistant professor in the social work program at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Excellent, thank you. So if you could just give our listeners a little bit of a overview of your study, sharing a little bit about what prompted it, what's the main question, um, kind of what you did and, and then what you ended up finding at the end. Uh, thanks, Melissa. This is Kristen. Um, I'll take that first question. Uh, so the how we kind of got started on this study is we um, began our MSW program here at UW-Whitewater um, just a few short years ago and have engaged with some partnerships with um, the Department of Health and Human Services in Wisconsin. Um, and we've been talking about sort of how do we improve services in our state? How do we um, keep our graduate social workers in the state after they complete programs and, and things of that nature. And one of the things that came up as a topic of discussion is this, this notion of, you know, we, we train our students in these different um, techniques, different therapeutic processes, and then they get into the field and folks are talking about evidence-based practice and what are we doing and why are we doing it? Um, and there's been some conversation in our state about uh, sort of how do we keep those folks, right? So if we provide these trainings and they get certified and then they move on. So there's sort of this constant trajectory of new students coming in and then, you know, leaving one service organization or, or whatnot. Um, and that really got our wheels turning as a team here about how do we, how do we help this problem? And so we started thinking about our own curriculum and, and what we're teaching in our uh, advanced practice classes and, and how are we preparing students for the field um, and engaged in some conversations with uh, our field program, which Kathy, one of the co-authors, is the uh, coordinator for our field program, as well as other educators across the state and practitioners in the field. And we started to notice some differences about what people were thinking about and, and how they felt about evidence-based practice. Um, which sort of got us thinking like, gosh, are we contributing to that? How do we, how do we help this issue? Because um, anecdotally, what we were finding is that 
you know, students seemed pretty excited about it. And then they would transition into the field and into practice and that would sort of dwindle. Um, or they would come, come back to us and say, you know, hey, Dr. Prock, you know, all that stuff you taught me, like, we're not doing that. And so it began this conversation of what's happening in that transition period. And so the three of us really put our heads together and said, like, well, where's the problem, right? So where's the breakdown? If, we, if we're excited about it, we get students excited about it. And by it, I mean evidence-based practice. Um, then what happens when they get into the field, right? So is this a problem uh, across the state or is it just something we're seeing in our part of the state? So that's kind of how the process began. Can I interrupt you for just one second? Absolutely. Could you, um, you know, the term evidence-based practice is used so differently in the literature. And I was wondering if you could describe what you, how you're def defining evidence-based practice compared to other terms that are sometimes conflated with that. Absolutely. That's a really great question. And if you, um, for those of, of, of you listeners, if you're able to grab this article, we do talk somewhat about the notion of evidence-based practice versus the evidence-based practice process versus evidence-based interventions, right? And so that is the part that becomes, I think, confusing for students because they see it all as one thing and it's really three different um, constructs. And, and that's also something we've found in the literature, right? So when we, we talk about these things, um, we read it and we're like, okay, so what are, they, what are they really talking about? So for the purpose of this study, what we wanted to initially focus on is the evidence-based practice process. So how students come to understand the specific evidence-based interventions, how they come to understand that, how they feel about that or their attitudes about that process, meaning we have this information that we read, um, whether it's textbooks or we learn about it in class or, or different continuing education trainings that, you know, quote unquote, train the social worker and how to do these different interventions. But we wanted to take it a step back and say, okay, how about the step before that? So when we're learning about these specific interventions, how do we get there? Right. So really, it's that idea of how do we find the evidence? How do we infuse that into our practice? And then how are we using that moving forward? So I'm not sure if I answered your question completely or not. Um, well, I guess, I guess for me, I, I think of um, the evidence based practice process as really a six step process mm -hmm. that involves starting with an assessment identifying the presenting problem, locating within the literature, what specific interventions, models of intervention have been shown to be effective with that particular population. Then to go back and have a conversation with the client about what you found, make a mutual joint decision about treatment planning based on what you found in the literature, and then to implement the intervention. And some people even include a seventh step, which is then evaluating how that is going and the progress of it. That to me is a process. I often refer to it as a action or a verb versus the noun, the thing, mm -hmm. the distinct intervention, the distinct model, like I call it the alphabet soup, like 
CBT, DBT, IPT, TFCBT, there's ACT, there's a thousand of them. And these are, these are standalone models that have been shown to be superior to treatment as usual or in comparison to another evidence-based treatment or empirically supported treatment. I use those terms kind of interchangeably. So it sounds like what you were trying to do is talk about the process mm -hmm. and our students using that process which may or may not result in finding an evidence-based treatment for their client population. Because I often will say to my students, well, if you have a client from Ethiopia who had a trauma history and is also experiencing postpartum depression, you're not gonna find a treatment that is perfect for her because that's too specific. So it's how are they using and incorporating research into their clinical decision-making process. That is what you were really more focused on rather than their use of specific models of intervention, correct? Yeah, because one of the things that we have found is, you know, students, you get the buzzwords, right? So you talk about CBT, DBT, MI, what's going on at their particular clinic, and everybody wants to do that. And, and from our perspective, we're like, yeah, that's great but you got to back it up a step first, right? So you got to take it back to how do we inform ourselves and how do we get to that point down the road, right? Because nobody's yeah. going to come out of a, a particular MSW program trained to fidelity in any particular evidence-based practice or intervention. It's just not going to happen. And that's what we try to reinforce with our students is that it's really about the skills and the process to get you there and making the, the best possible decision with the information that they have. Yeah, so you were really looking at the meta process and then they can then add these different interventions to their toolbox as they move forward, but you really wanted to say, what's their meta process of being able to use research and evidence to inform their clinical practice? Yes. Got it. Okay, thanks. Okay, where was I? <laughs> um, okay, so I, that's kind of a little bit of a background. Um, so I think kind of moving forward, so that's that was kind of our brainchild, where it all came from, um, and how, how are we going to get to that next piece? So we decided we wanted to um, keep it specific to the state of Wisconsin because we were working in partnership with our um, Department of Health and Human Services, and they wanted to know kind of what's going on in our state. Um, and then from there, we hope to you know, grow it to a larger audience. Um, but for this particular study, kind of our overarching question was, you know, what are or are there differences in knowledge and attitudes about evidence-based practice and that mm -hmm. process looking at graduate level social work students, social work educators across our state, and then social work practitioners. So the folks that are in the field doing the work. Um, and we started kind of small. We started with our program. We surveyed all of our um, MSW students that were in their clinical year. Um, we also invited all faculty that were currently teaching in a CSWE accredited social work program in our state, um, as well as we tried to reach as many practitioners we as we could across the state. Um, and for folks that don't know, Wisconsin is very rural. So we're probably 
75, 80% rural. Um, and we really thought it was important to try to get to all points of the state. So we used various listservs um, to reach those practitioners, um, both from our specific school and our network, as well as a larger uh, group of mental health professionals um, across the state. It's a, a listserv that goes out for uh, CE purposes or training. So it reaches um, a great number of folks in our state um, with the, the end goal of kind of looking at what are the differences, right? So we asked those three groups of folks about their specifically focusing on their knowledge of the evidence-based practice process, as well as their attitude. So how do you feel about it? Um, and interestingly enough, um, the, the first section um, related to the knowledge component, um, social work students' knowledge of the evidence-based practice process was significantly lower than educators and practitioners. We expected that. We surveyed students coming in. Um, some, for some of the students as an advanced standing student, it might've been their first or second class with us. So that was not all that shocking. Um, what was interesting about that is that practitioners had a significantly lower knowledge score than educators. So that to me was, we were like, wow, that's kind of alarming, right? So we have these folks that are out in the field doing the work and they don't understand the process or they don't know enough about the process to answer these particular questions. So that kind of got us thinking about, okay, well, how do they feel about it? Right? So if, if, if there's that hard, like, this is the knowledge, this is what we have, I wonder why. Um, so the, the second subset of questions um, for using the evidence-based practice process assessment scale focused on attitudes about the evidence-based practice process. Um, and interestingly enough, what we found was that the social work students had the most positive attitudes about the evidence-based practice process. So they were excited to learn about it. They thought it was valuable. Um, they wanted to be better practitioners. And so they really wanted to use that research that they're learning about to inform their practice, which we were pretty excited about, right? Because we're like, great, our students are super excited about this. Um, I wonder what other folks are going to say, right? So then when we looked at those other two groups of the, the educators and the practitioners, the scores dropped. So educators had less positive attitudes than students, um, and the social work practitioners had the lowest um, attitude score, meaning they had the least positive feelings about the evidence-based practice process. Um, which was a little shocking to us, right? And so we thought, okay, what, is the, what does this all really mean, right? So we have, we have these students that are super excited about it and then educators that are still pretty excited about it. And then something happens when they transition into the field and they're in the field doing the work that that positive attitude about this process starts to dwindle. Um, so, you know, it's, it's it's kind of fascinating. Um, I'm gonna let one of my other colleagues kind of talk about what their thoughts are regarding like, why is this happening? What's going on? Um, so I don't take up all of the airtime. <laughs> Hi, this is Sarah. And you know, we were just focused now on the main take home messages. 
And we really just got thinking about, as Kristen was saying, what is that gap? What happens when we have energetic students going into the field that they kind of lose that energy over time? I think even for social work educators, social work educators know that the field is still struggling with this issue. So we know, I mean, I think we have some of that reality that the students don't have, that we've seen agencies and field partners start programs and then stop them. So I think that kind of speaks to the attitudes of why maybe some of the educators' attitudes drop and then the field partners drop. One thing we really started to talk with students about this based on what we found is that you guys have this positive attitude you should be exploring this process. You should be advocating for this process because we really felt like that was kind of a disconnect. Our students were saying, even when they graduate, well, I'm going to this agency and this is all they do. Mm -hmm. And we're like, well, why do they do that? Well, we don't know. You know, we don't know where that got started. And, and I think that's what we've really stressed is then, well, you need to ask that question. And is it still built on the best literature that we have today? Well, because a lot of them would say that this is how they started this program 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Who's challenging that? Or who's looking at this entire process? We wanted our current students to be advocates of change based on what they're learning and not just kind of settling for the status quo or settling for well, this is what they do, so we're just going to accept that. I mean, they're young and they're new, so I think that's a little scary to students. Um, and I think that's some of that shifting as well that happens is can I really voice my concern? You know, so they come out of school really, oh, I'm going to look, I'm going to find the best for this client group. Are they really able to express that in an agency? Yeah, and some of the other literature that I've seen, especially some of work by Jennifer Bellamy and um, Tracy Wyke in a, a study that I was involved in later. Um, also, when their supervisors don't support it, it's really hard for them to bring it into supervision. And there's so many other things that they're doing and they're learning and they're trying to figure out that if their supervisor really doesn't model it in the field, that then it really doesn't happen. Another thing that I've, I've heard um, and read is um, that there's this perception that it takes an incredible amount of time. Like, oh, I have to do this long literature research and they're sort of picturing what happens in school where they have to do a research paper instead of looking at some of the free resources like the Cochrane Library that does meta-analyses in very plain everyday language or SAMHSA or the evidence-based clearinghouse warehouse, or the Campbell Collaborative, all these, or even Google Scholar, all these free resources, and, and they get overwhelmed at the thought of, oh, I have to do this massive exhaustive search, and it's gotta be like a research paper, and if I miss anything, and when do I have time to read anything? But, you know, abstracts are super helpful, and um, summaries are really great, but I, I, I know that that, has come up a lot in the literature of the, the lack of modeling in the field and then their own perception of how long it will take for them to find anything. Um, and then that really, 
again, makes a big drop down in, in their use of it. Melissa, this is Sarah again. And one thing that's interesting that we did do as a result of this is we did a CEU based on evidence-based practice and implementation science. And it was interesting how well that was received hmm. because people kind of forget that process when they're in the field as well. They kind of step out of that student role. And it really, the feedback we got was like, because we were like, well, who's going to, you know, how, are we going to get people to participate? Um, and we kind of turned it into our ethical responsibility to engage in the process. And we got very positive feedback, like, thanks for bringing this back to the table. Because I think kind of like what you're saying is when people are out in the field, supervisors aren't bought into it. So they're not talking about it. Agencies aren't bought into it. So it gave us a chance to kind of get people bought back into it. Um, so just a suggestion for people yeah. out there that if your community is struggling with this, educate them. Re, yeah. You know, re-educate, bring, bring your excitement about it back to the table. Yeah, and I think, um, this is Melissa, and I think that, an, um, you know, a big issue is that people have interpreted, again, they confuse the terms. So they think you're asking me to do one of the alphabet soups. And I don't do the alphabet soup. I do X, Y, and Z. And what I really, I try and frame it with my students around, think about if you went to any kind of provider, dentist, doctor, podiatrist, I mean, whoever, and they were never looking at the research about what would be helpful for your own particular issue. Would you really want to go back to that person? Because they've just been doing the same thing for 20 years and because that's what they do. And they, they've never re-looked at the literature or that they don't say, oh, I'm, you know what? I'm not an expert in this area. Let me, let me look at the literature and see if there's something that would be more helpful to you. When you frame it like that, everybody goes, well, yeah, of course I would never go to that. But for some reason with psychotherapy or other behavioral health interventions, we seem to be okay with the, yeah, this is what I do and how I do it. And, 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 and that's what I do without really um, checking in with the literature to see, well, is there something I could be doing differently? What could I do to improve my practice? What, how are outcome measures? How, are, how am I even going to tell if what I'm doing is effective? This is Sarah again. And one of the things that we'll be eating lunch and we'll be talking about like a program on campus and well, what's the implementation science behind that? Or why did that fail? Like, because we've re-educated ourselves, it has changed and shaped our language. We had a program that recently the leader left, right? And so it dropped away. But that's the questions we want, as you were saying, students to be asking about everything they're engaged in. Exactly. You know, are we only doing this because one person believes in it? Do others believe in other things? Can we have conversations about what others believe in? Yeah, and I think you're right. When you're a new practitioner and you're new in the field and you're not yet licensed, you're trying to kind of find your feet and it's intimidating to challenge the, the authority to say, well, why do we do this? And what's the reason? And what's, what's the empirical support behind this intervention? But again, it's, it, it is that I think of it as a critical thinking process, uh, evidence-based practice process as a critical thinking process of why are we doing what we're doing? 
why am I doing my, my co-author on a lot of things um, was my first year practice teacher. And I use this quote all the time um, from Jim Drisco. And he says, why am I doing this particular thing with this particular client at this particular time? And you should be able to have some sort of answer to that. Um, and I do think the evidence-based practice process provides some, again, some steps and some structure of how to, how to do that in a thoughtful way. Because you really are infusing the best research evidence along with the client's particular unique circumstances, along with your expertise and seeing where those align. It's often depicted as a Venn diagram to, to show that beautiful middle spot where my expertise, your needs and circumstances and the research all align. And the reality is sometimes it doesn't. And, and it's ethically, I think in our best interest to make sure if we can't provide that, we, find, we help them find another provider or another program who has that expertise if it's outside of ours. But I think that's a conversation and a decision that should be done collaboratively and jointly with the clients. One of the, what I was saying was that one of, one of the activities we use in our training classes is we have, we give students a scenario and have them read it and it's based on a medical need and then challenge them to think about, you know, how would you go about getting services, right? And it's, and then we use a very similar circumstance, but it's a mental health need and ask them to think about how do you go about getting services? And it, it's been very eye-opening how many students have sort of blindly just went with the medical, whatever the medical says, right? Like we're going to do that because the doctor's the expert. But then when we get to those mental health needs, it gets murky, right? And so I think, I think, you know, Kathy's going to talk a little bit about some of the barriers, but I think that that is sort of a part of the piece that's so interesting to us in that how do we see our field? How do we see our profession? And how do we sort of start thinking about changing the culture or the climate of how we think about getting that care? Because in, in the medical field, it's not challenged. You know, I, I, I jokingly say, you know, would you take, you know, if you had a broken leg, would you go to an ear, nose and throat doctor? Well, no, of course you wouldn't, right? Because that's, that's, not, that's not how it works. But if you have, you know, someone who's struggling with some sort of mental health related issue, we don't think about that in the same way. Mm -hmm. We don't think about that expertise and what the client wants. We think about, you know, what does our clinic say we have to do? Or what does this um, insurance company say we have to do in order to get that service paid for? And, and we're not treated the same way in, in terms of expertise and, and understanding the way yeah. folks in the medical profession are. Well, and I think there's also a slight tendency in our, I don't know that this is unique to social work, but in within psychotherapy, mental health, behavioral health services in general, that you're kind of a generalist and you can kind of do anything and everything for everyone. And um, the reality is, is that some of us do better with some things than others. And thankfully there are lots of people with different expertise, but I, I, I think that's a really, really interesting point. Um, and I love that exercise because I don't think we spend enough time really thinking about what is my area of expertise and, and are we really offering clients clear, um, clear descriptions of what we do 
and how we do it and let them be a participant in that decision-making process. So um, obviously we're still struggling. <laughs> Your study and many others um, have been indicating that we're, we as a field are still struggling to both just even defining and coming up with a clear definition as well as to adopting and implementing. We talked a little bit about some of the barriers, but you mentioned that Kathy had some additional ones. So um, Kathy, what are, what are some of the other barriers that you would say that your team came up with around why social workers just continue to struggle with this issue? Well, thank you, Melissa. This is Kathy, like you said, and, and it is interesting that you know, the evidence-based language has been around probably started in the 1970s with medicine. And then uh, around the 2000s, it really kind of came prevalent and took off in the helping, the helping professions, especially in mental health services. And even our own Council on Social Work Education in 2015 and 2018 really put a charge forward that this is something that we should be doing in our coursework. So then you kind of bring that important question up as to why are we at where we're at yet, still kind of struggling with um, not being able to have um, a consistent message and that, that attitude and belief around the importance of evidence-based practice. I think we talked about it a couple times and it was really eye-opening for me when, when I was doing this research was the language barriers and just the, the differences in understanding the evidence-based process versus the evidence-based treatments and, and interventions. And I think we get those languages mixed up. And so maybe we're doing a little bit more than we think we're doing, maybe we're not. Um, I, I think traditionally we think about the alphabet soup. When I think of evidence-based practice, I'm either doing CBT, DBT, MI, or something like that. So I really think that part of it is just this continuing education on the language and that the actual process is super important to be able to get to um, the best possible outcomes for individuals that we're, we're working with. I also think one of the other significant barriers is, is that we look at the evidence-based process as a linear process, that I'm this emerging new social worker, um, I'm charged to do evidence-based practices, and it's all on my shoulders. And I really think that when we talk about barriers, that many of the barriers kind of lend towards that it's really not all on our shoulders. We mentioned a couple of them. We need supervisors and management and administrators at our agencies that are talking that same language that are supportive of what we're doing. Policymakers need to be supporting, you know, what we're doing in the delivery of our services uh, with, with, um, with evidence-based practices. We have to have the trainings available, not only just about the process, but some of when, when we realize and recognize that this is the best evidence-based treatment out there, are the trainings accessible? We know in Wisconsin, we've seen different trends kind of come and go. You know, motivational interviewing might be offered a lot, then, you know, then DBT, but then if there, if it's not grant funded, the sustainability through an implementation science perspective, we don't have the momentum and the initiative to keep those different types of evidence-based treatments going. One of the things that we look at as a barrier is, is always time, but I'm a huge proponent of if we are using this process and we are trained in certain evidence-based treatments, it's going to save us time. Our outcomes are going to come faster. Our clients are going to reach our, those outcomes faster and the betterment of the bigger picture is, is going to be um, for everyone. 
So when we when we look at this, and we also see social work education as as one of those barriers as well, are we really, from a social work education perspective, really putting the time and energy into not only talking about the different evidence-based treatments, but the process of evidence-based practice and, and, and how do we get there? But I think Sarah mentioned this as well. What do we do when we're that emerging social worker? We get at that agency. We found out that our attitudes and beliefs are the highest out of all of the people involved in this. And then we start dwindling on that. So are we, you know, why is that decreasing? And are we really looking at, well, how do we keep those emerging social workers motivated and, and do they have the skills to be able to um, take that transition from education into practice and really be able to sustain that, those, that, those, that excitement around um, this is really what's best for, for our clients and consumers. So how do we mobilize that knowledge and how do we um, transition from um, and keep that transition going? Um, another thing that I'd like to talk about just a little bit too is about in order to keep this momentum going, and we talk about supervisors a lot, and statistic used to show within two years of practice, like our MSW students are going to be supervisors. And, and are we from starting from social work education, are we able to, are we teaching those not only the skills to advocate, but also do that facilitator ex expertise and skills on if and when you're going to be in that supervisory role, how do we continue with that momentum, not only for ourselves, but those, those individuals that, that we're supervising. I think it was also mentioned too, which was a fascinating piece of this project for me too, is just the importance of implementation science. And so we've also incorporated that and what is implementation science and teaching our graduate students in our field education course, what is implementation science and how does that impact client outcomes and, and what are the different various steps of implementation science for sustainability, for sustainability purposes, not only individually as practitioners, but also the bigger picture for our organizations. So those are just some of the thoughts and, and some of the things that we're thinking about with different future research questions and with the barriers. And, and once again, not looking at it as a linear process that the emerging social workers are in it on their own, but it really starts all the way back from social work education, giving them the skills of how to transition and, and to mobilize that knowledge from their education to practice. But then also, how do you survive within that organizational structure to have the skill set to break down those barriers? But also, if you're in a supervisory position, how do you have that facilitated expertise in order to continue to do that for not only yourself, but the individuals that you are um, that you are supervising? And then how do you take those challenges on with administration? How do you get their support? And then all the way up to the policymakers, who are our funders, who are those individuals? that will, will help us with help us with that. One of the other interesting barriers that we're seeing in Wisconsin too is just the mobility of social workers. They're not staying at organizations for long periods of time. And uh, I think it might have something to do with generational differences. And, and so that mobility piece of it is that they're getting trained possibly in certain um, evidence-based treatments or even the process, but then they're leaving agencies. So another perspective of a barrier is just context. It looks so different in all the different agencies that we work in. So how do you get 
um, how do you have that knowledge to be flexible, that the context of evidence-based practice may look different and the process may look different at different organizations, but how do you, even though you're changing positions, how do you still stay true to that, that ethical responsibility of evidence-based practice? Well, and, and I think you're bringing up with that mobility, not only is they're taking their knowledge, but then they're not supervising the next generation coming in. And so there isn't that institutional knowledge that's being passed down. And that can be a huge issue for agencies. So you mentioned um, that it maybe needs to start in social work education. So what do you think we're doing what do you think we're doing wrong and what do you think we're doing right? And I'm not sure who's gonna answer that question, but um, what are we doing? What's happening in social work education that is either helping or, or shooting ourselves in the foot? This is, this is Kristen. Um, I'll take part of that question. Um, it's a great question. And actually, you know, I, I thought some about it before meeting this morning. Um, as myself, personally, as an educator, you know, what, what am I doing to help or hinder this process? Um, and I think the first piece that that's really important is that we need to be excited about this, right? As educators, we should be, we should be excited about it because of the science behind it, not because we have to teach about it. Right. So, you know, Kathy mentioned CSWE's charge to infuse this in our, our education, which is obviously very important. Um, but I think what happens and, and also happened, I think, to us until we really got into this and thinking about it is that you say evidence-based practice or evidence-based practices and people go right to the, to the alphabet soup, right? So that, that word we've been using and we don't, we need to really take a step back and think about, okay, how do we get there, right? That's Z, that's way at the end of what we're doing is those actual evidence-based treatments or evidence-based interventions. But how we get there um, and how we get from, this is my client and what do I do? Um, and when we talk about things in the classroom about, you know, I think it's important to talk about the frustrations, you know, the, the barriers, the things that are happening in the field, but we also need to challenge students to get beyond that, right? So we can change this, this culture. We can shift the culture in the way we think about it, but it has to start with the people at the beginning. And then that, that piece of how do we promote that in the field afterwards? I think it's important to be realistic with students about the, the things that they are going to encounter, but also giving them the information, um, the, the tools that are free and accessible to them so that they're not thinking, okay, so I have this client, I have to find a research article that says I need to do X, Y, and Z. Right, because that's not necessarily the answer, but that's where we automatically go. And what we hear is, oh, my agency doesn't have access to that. Now that I'm not associated with the university, I can't get those things, right? And I think folks forget about all of the stuff that is available to them, you know, through SAMHSA, through the California Clearinghouse, all of those, those resources that are free, that's where we need to go when we don't have that access. Those research articles, they're important, they're great, they inform our practice, but that's not, it's not a one-stop shop, right? So we really need to be thinking about promoting it in a way that students know it's accessible and that they can get to it, not just, let me tell you what we're gonna do here in the education piece. And when you get out into the field, it's gonna be different. 
I mean, I've even heard myself saying that before because prior to becoming an educator, I was a practitioner for a very long time. And I found those, those things in my own practice getting in the way. But if I stop and reflect on why, right? It's because I had that, that sort of that attitude already of, well, I know I'm not gonna be able to get at these tools. I know I'm not gonna be able to get these things. Instead of thinking about it in a more um, sort of strengths-based, right? So like, I'm a social worker, I have these skills. These are, these are the things that are in my toolbox. Now I need to use them in a way that's practical in the field. And we can, we can put some of those resources in the show notes um, so that folks can explore them and check them out because they are, they're free, they're accessible, and they're wonderful. They're great, great resources that anybody can access even if they're not affiliated with the university. So thank you, I appreciate, I appreciate that. And I do think um, we can make a culture shift, but it is gonna take some work to do that. This is Kathy also too. And I, I know that we have the research now that shows that our graduate students are leaving with this high sense of um, wanting to be involved in attitude and beliefs about evidence-based practice. And then we know when they get out in the trenches, if you will, and start working, that that starts to diminish. And so, you know, what can we can do better? I am thinking about just like, what are we doing to support them? Knowing that we've got this population of emerging social workers and they, they, they need support. So we, we talk a lot about like self-care and how are you doing, you know, with your self-care and things. Well, maybe the new culture shift has to change to and starting some, you know, communities of practice. And are we presenting at all of our conferences that we go to and checking in with our, our new social workers? Like, how are you doing with this? And, and how can we collectively pull together to support you just around this particular issue? Thank you. Is there anything else you want to add about social work education before we kind of do some final thoughts and ideas? No, this is Sarah and I think it's been covered. I think for me as a social work educator, I have to check my own biases. I need to check my own preferences, right? So having practiced in the field, Maybe how I did things weren't the best way. And I think that's what's great about the three of us working on this project is we can have those open conversations. Yeah, maybe I was trained in CBT, but maybe there's a better way to do it now with the populations. And so I'm always looking at my students too as educating me and giving me information. And I think that's what gets them excited. Like, oh, I've read this new research. Instead of shutting them down and saying, well, 20 years ago, this was what was the best, right? Like keeping that open mind and recognizing, oh, I have my own biases based on what my supervisors told me to believe, right? And so I yeah. think it's just keeping that open mind. Well, and to that end, I think one of the, I think one of the struggles that we have as a field is that, um, and I know I was this, person who went into social work over psychology because the thought of doing a dissertation was frightening and I didn't want to do it. So I went to my MSW and like slogged my way through research with my head down, just waiting for it to be over. And, but I always say to my students, we need to be both consumers and producers of research. And I'm going to put a little bit of a plug in. We actually have a call for papers um, for a special issue asking practitioners 
to submit abstracts about work that they're doing in their field. And it's going to be really focused on, it's called Social Workers at Work. And again, people can find the link on the journal's website, but we really wanna hear from practitioners about what they're doing in the field. And we want, I wanna share that in some way because I don't think practitioners have a platform for sharing their work. If they're not tied to an academic institution, they don't know quote unquote how to write for a journal but they're doing amazing work out there. And I think that the more we can create a bigger pool of what's happening and how to share that, um, that gives our social workers who are graduating more options and, and practitioners who are currently practicing more options. So I, 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 I definitely get the feeling of, oh, I don't wanna do the research, but if if we don't share what we're doing out there in the field, we're limiting our pool of what we're gonna find doing the evidence-based practice process. And then it is gonna be limited to just a few of those alphabet soups every single time. And I think we really need to encourage practitioners to share what they're doing so that we all can learn from them. So great, Melissa, this is Sarah. And I always tell my students, I was kind of like that with research. Yeah. And now I'm like, I'll help you. Like, <laughs> I think research is fun. I'm like, I was driving down the street and thought about this research question. And I know. so I think sharing that, and like, I'm real honest with students, like come to me. So, you know, we just helped a student do a poster for a national conference. She's working in the medical field and just to see her energy and her excitement about sharing this new project she was working on is great. So I think we have to be willing to, to keep our encouragement going even when we're in the field. Yeah, and again, going back, putting it back to the medical thing, would you wanna to go to a practitioner who never evaluates what they're doing? Never does any sort of outcome about do their patients or do their consumers get better in any way, shape or form? So. Um, I'm not saying that social work is the same as medical and nor should we be, um, but I am saying that there are some lessons that we can learn from other professionals and other disciplines about how to evaluate what we're doing in order to improve and make sure that we're giving clients the best possible care that we can. Whether it's on the micro, meso or macro level, because in social work, as we know, we're covering it all. Um, okay, so what, wrapping up, what are, what would you like our readers and listeners to walk away with after reading your article or listening to this podcast? You know, a couple key points that you say, okay, if you walk away with just one or two things, these are the, these are the main points I want people to take away. Uh, this is, this is Kristen. I think first and foremost, that you know, the evidence-based practice process is not scary, right? It's it's doable, it's manageable. It, it's really, it's a way you look at how you um, provide the best possible services and then, you know, continue to evaluate what you're doing in your practice with the, the best possible information. Um, it sometimes feels daunting, I think, for especially emerging social workers to, to say, oh, I have to do this big, long thing, right? And it's not, it's not that hard. It's, it's accessible, it's there for you, and it's going to improve your, your practice skills. Um, and also, it, it, those steps improve our field. They improve our profession overall. So, you know, that, that 
kind of notion of, well, it's just me, I'm just one person, but you're one person for how many consumers, how many clients, and it, all it takes is one person. And so we really have walked away from this thinking about it's now is the time to really have those conversations and think about how we're going to shift uh, the climate around evidence-based practice, um, starting from the classroom and following it into the field to make sure that the folks that are transitioning into the field and then relatively quickly transitioning into those supervisor positions um, maintain those positive attitudes about what we're doing and, and how the process works um, because it only takes one supportive person, right? So having that supervisor that can say, let's talk about this. Like, where are you at with this? What did you find versus task supervision, right? Um, I think the other piece is that to be aware of how your attitude about a particular thing can impact a lot of people, right? Because it can be that ripple effect. If we know that students are, are leaving our programs excited about this work and relatively quickly, they seem to lose that excitement or that, that positive attitude, that's coming from somewhere. So really thinking about, even if you as a practitioner are listening to this and saying, I, I just can't do that in my job. Okay, so how do we not then shift that onto the folks that are still feeling like, I can do that, I can make a difference, I can continue to use this as sort of a best practice approach to this, um, because it only takes one negative person or one positive person to sort of shift that attitude either way. And we really wanna be thinking about how do we see the, the, the future of the profession? And um, I think that we wanna see that in a positive light and really think about what we can do to improve the lives of the folks that we work with. Really, really well said, thank you. Well, I wanna thank you all so much for taking the time to talk about your article. And again, we'll put a link in the show notes for the article that is free for the next couple months. And everybody, I hope, will go and read it and look at it and explore it. And um, we look forward to hearing the next installments of your work to understand more about how we can continue to improve the field, both, I think, for our profession and more, I don't know, more importantly, but also very importantly for the clients that social workers seek to support and help um, reach whatever goals those are. So thank you all so much for your work and your time. And you. I wish you well. Thank you. Thanks, thank Melissa. You. Thanks, Melissa.